This is the most outrageous scandal and scam I have seen in the 40-plus years I've been looking at writing about college admission. This is certainly rocking the higher education community um, just simply by the, the breadth and numbers of people involved and the criminal allegations that are at play. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. I write a blog called May It Please the Court. I have two books out titled How to Get Sued and The Sled. Well, before we introduce today's topic, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Clio. Clio's cloud-based practice management software makes it easy to manage your law firm from intake to invoice. You can try it for free at Clio.com. That's C-L-I-O.com. Well, in what can be classified as the nation's largest ever college admissions bribery scandal, on March 12, 2019, federal prosecutors out of Boston, Massachusetts, charged some 50 individuals with allegedly being part of a scheme to influence admissions decisions at colleges and universities around the United States. The alleged participants consisted mainly of parents ranging from famous actresses to some lawyers, surprisingly, to heads of corporations who worked with William Singer, who was the CEO of a college admissions prep company and his connections, to get their children into top colleges, including allegations of falsifying SAT scores, lying about athletic skills, and more. Today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we will spotlight this recent college admission scandal. We'll take a look at the charges against the alleged participants, the litigation brought by the students against the colleges, and the impact the scandal will have on colleges, admissions, and students in the future. To do that, we've got a great lineup of guests today. Here to discuss today's topic is Professor Joy Blanchard from Louisiana State University's College of Human Sciences and Education. Her research focuses on higher education law, primarily issues related to intercollegiate athletics, negligence liability, and student welfare, as well as faculty life. Welcome to the show, Joy. Thank you so much for inviting me today. And our next guest is Steve Cohen. He's an attorney at Pollock Cohen LLP in New York, a former member of the Board of Directors of the United States Naval Institute. Also, he's the co-author of Getting In College Admissions in the Digital Age. Welcome to the show, Steve. Thanks for having me, Craig. Well, Steve, I think I'll toss this first kind of background question to you. What's going on here? This is the most outrageous scandal and scam I have seen in the 40-plus years I've been looking at and writing about college admission. Rick Singer's scam involved two different tracks. One was to pay a 36-year-old Harvard graduate to take the SAT and ACT exams for kids who paid them off. And the second was to bribe top college coaches to pretend that student applicants actually played that sport. In fact, they paid 
to pretend that they played the sport. And so it's two different thrusts. Right now, there are about 35 families that have been implicated and indicted. And the rumor is it may reach as high as 750 people. Joy, is this really any different than people doing it through the front door? You know, for many years, it's always been that if somebody's wealthy, they endow a building, and all of a sudden there's a legacy admission for a prospective student. Right. That's a, a great question and, and a really astute observation. Um, I agree with uh, my co-guest, Steve, that this is certainly rocking the higher education community just simply by the, the breadth and numbers of people involved and the criminal allegations that are at play. That is something we haven't seen, but it is true. Um, Sadly, it shouldn't be that much of a shock to people in the higher education community and even those outside of it because there have been so many other ways that people have been able to gain favor through the admissions process, either through special admits or through university advancement and fundraising, um, and also just the way that the system is set up, um, not just internally, but even legally, the uh, amount of deference that courts have always shown to institutional academic freedom. So there's many, many layers to this. I read something that my co-guest wrote earlier on the topic. I agree with him that the system is certainly corrupt but not broken. But I think, if anything, this has exposed um, certainly some holes in the fence. Um, The fact that um, Mr. Singer knew that he could exploit the special admits through athletics shows that there is potential corruption in that system right there. Steve, how far does this go? Does this reach into the colleges and universities themselves? Do they know this was going on behind the scenes? Well, of course, the colleges that have been implicated claim that they're shocked, shocked to find that this is going on. And it's pretty hard to accept that. Look, was this a few very bad apples? Absolutely. But how many other apples in that barrel have been infected by this rot? And I think that's going to come out. What was really shocking to me was the range of really good schools that were that, that were implicated in this, you know, uh, from Yale to Stanford, from USC to Georgetown. These were top schools that parents were willing to take the extraordinary unethical risk to bribe people to get their kids in. You know, Joy said something, and I, I want to go back to this. She, you know, I, I used the phrase, and it, it came to me after a lot of thinking about this scandal. The system is corrupt, it's corrupting, but it's not broken. What I mean by that is colleges have been admitting kids for lots of reasons through in what the president of Georgetown calls his buckets, that he has 140 buckets of interests and special interests that he has to fill with an entering class every year. And so the system of allowing coaches, for example, to allocate a certain number of slots of potential athletes for their team has been going on for a long time, and I'm going to predict it's not going to change. There may be a little bit more oversight, but it's not going to change. And then the other end of the extreme, where wealthy families have long had an advantage, known as development prospects, if you were able and willing to endow a library or a classroom or a lab or a professorship, your kid's going to be taken a lot more seriously as an applicant than if you don't have that money. So that's just one of many, many buckets, special interests that 
schools all across the country, large and small, look to try to satisfy every single year. So the system is working exactly as schools, as universities want it to work. They've got to satisfy those niches and the constituencies that push for those niches on every college campus. Joy, let me put you in the position of a defense attorney for these wealthy parents. What arguments do you have? Oh, wow. <laughs> um, gosh, I, to be honest, I don't know if I have any. Um, you know, there. Take a plea bargain. Make... Beg for forgiveness. <laughs> I mean, um, or is, is the they... argument that nobody's really been hurt a, a good argument? I mean, you know, come on, the universities all have, you know, not a thousand spots. We all know that they can go to a thousand five if they want it. Mm-hmm. You know, that's such a good question. And as far as the criminal aspects of that, I cannot speak to um, because I'm not a practicing attorney. But I think, uh, if anything, some of these parents may claim that they didn't realize what they were doing was wrong because there is uh, such a proliferation of um, college admission specialists. Now, the argument that no one was harmed, I would say, for me, falls short, um, because not only were students um, participating in an admission system that they thought was legitimate and fair, um, you know, there are people hurt in this system, those who were um, barred from entering these universities, and actually even the students themselves, the children of uh, those families who are involved. And of course, that goes into deeper issues. But there are so many people um, who are to blame. And like what Mr. Cohen said about athletics, uh, that's been going on for a long time. Uh, the NCAA can only carry out the regulations that its member institutions enact for them to carry out. And they've been debating this for decades. Back in the 70s, they instituted a minimum GPA. And so this is something they've struggled with for a long time. And do I think it will change? I agree with, with Steve. No, I don't. Because then you would have the institutions that compete very well, but are also elite academic institutions such as North Carolina, Michigan, Stanford. Are they going to then enact a policy that says, well, anyone we admit to our university must satisfy the median academic standard. That would hurt them on the playing field. And as we know, when you're successful in football and basketball, that can mean millions of dollars from television contracts as well as from private donations. And so, like I said earlier, there are just so many layers to this. Steve, you know, you asked a great question. Team. I'm sorry, Craig, go ahead. No, I was going to just kind of follow up with Joy's observation about the NCAA. We have a couple of institutions here that have some jurisdiction in addition to the criminal charges that we're seeing. We have the SAT and that realm of how that punishment's going to occur within that organization and the athletic coaches that were involved or what's going to happen with them from the NCAA. Right. I think that's a great question. And I don't have a lot of faith in the NCAA. And I want to point to their punting the ball about two years ago after the scandal at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, where hundreds of athletes had been taking courses that had basically no requirements. They didn't have to even show up. And the NCAA said, no, we, no, we, we have no jurisdiction over this. You know, the role of high-level sports on colleges is one that is completely unresolved. Are they really in college? Are they really pre-professional? And, you know, a judge on the West Coast uh, just last week said, you know, 
we, we really ought to be thinking about compensating student-athletes. Well, we don't have to use the word student. We have to use the word athletes who happen to be on college campuses differently than we currently are. So I would put the athletic piece aside and go back to the what does this say about both these individual parents? You know, should they be punished? How should they be punished? How about the kids? And the, the real question is, are there kids who didn't know that their parents were doing this? And we heard, we saw something come out in the news recently that one of those kids who was admitted as a so-called track star uh, was approached by his new academic advisor at school and said, I hear you're terrific in track. You're going to show up for practice. And the kid had no clue what the academic advisor was talking about. And the parent then turned back to Rick Singer, who had orchestrated this entire scam. And he said, don't worry. And he said, don't worry, because he got to a higher athletic person. I think it was the University of Southern California. And that person said, all right, I'll, I'll make sure that they back off and don't question you know, too closely this new student about his so-called athletic prowess or lack of it. But you ask the question, you know, what would joy do if she were the defense lawyer and uh, you know this is where you just want to cop a plea as quickly as possible you want to see it you know you don't want to go to trial on this i mean this is these are serious serious allegations of bribery and money laundering and racketeering i mean these are some serious potential penalties criminal penalties not just financial but possibly jail time and you know what's going to happen we're going to wait and see and who is it that going to, beyond the parents, the coaches, are, can we expect coaches to go to jail? Well, some have already um, pled guilty. So we don't know what they've agreed to in their plea bargain. And, you know, as part of that plea bargain, who are they turning in? How, you know, I guess it was the coach at Yale has agreed. Um, he pled guilty and he's become what we used to refer to as state's evidence. He's, he's cooperating with the federal investigators who are pursuing mm-hmm. this case. So we're going to see how much further it goes. But he was accepting $450,000 for a single student to use one of his slots on his soccer roster. I mean, there's real money involved here. This is big time. I think it is important also to mention, speaking of the coach's involvement in criminal uh, issues, is there's also a separate investigation going on in which coaches at certain institutions were also breaking the law by brokering deals with families and representatives from, uh, I believe, Adidas and some of the other companies interested in recruiting athletes, such as IMG representation. So at my own institution, LSU, its basketball coach is currently suspended because he is one of several NCAA basketball coaches who were part of an FBI investigation in which they were audio recorded um, brokering bribes and deals. And so, um, unfortunately, the scandal and, and this type of exploitation within college sports is not unique and not new to the admissions issue that we're talking about today. It's been going on for quite a while. You know, I think it has, but hey, Steve, let me interrupt it, here for just yeah, a second, sure. Steve. Before we move on to our next segment, we're going to take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsor. We'll be right back. Imagine what you could do with an extra eight hours per week. That's how much time legal professionals save with Clio, the world's leading practice management software. With intuitive time tracking, billing, and matter management, Clio streamlines everything you do to run your practice from intake to invoice. Try Clio for free and get a 10% discount for your first six months when you sign up at their website, 
clio.com. That's C-L-I-O.com with the code L2L10. That's L2L, the number 10. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Craig Williams, and we're joined by Professor Joy Blanchard from Louisiana State University's College of Human Sciences and Education, and Steve Cohen. He's an attorney at Pollock Cohen LLP. And Steve, right before the break, I cut you off. Well, I think Joy really put her finger on something. This particular scandal right now involves 50 people. And if, as rumors suggest, it could involve as many as 750, it's still the tip of the iceberg. These are really wealthy parents who did something absolutely unethical and illegal. Full stop. This is a criminal matter. What's going on in college athletics is a much bigger issue. And we have not seen, we've just seen the tip of the iceberg there. And I think that's where we want to you know, look in the, in the next few months as to what, what comes out. How systemic has money or the wealthy's use of money, how systemic is this problem in our society? It's not just college admissions, but are we, are we seeing this kind of behavior that money can pay for anything throughout society now? Well, let's just stick to college for a second. We know that money can buy lots of things. It can buy a building. It can buy additional tutoring and you know coaching of how to write an essay. The wealthy have an advantage, and the biggest advantage is not just the money, but knowing how to manipulate the system. And we see that at all levels of the you know of the high school and college admission process. Full stop. We also see other ways the playing field is not tilted evenly. And we see it, and this is very controversial, in the lawsuit that's going on up in Boston right now with the Judge Hazard of the Asian American students who've sued Harvard and said, it is not fair that we have to have 400 points higher on our SATs compared to black and Hispanic students who are applying. The playing field is tilted against us in that regard. So it's, it's not just money. The, the system is, is tilted in too many ways. It's like walking along a coral reef. You're going to get cut any way you walk. Steve brings up an excellent point that I also did want to mention. You were asking what can money buy you in the higher education community. And, you know, the higher education community has reacted to this in awe and shock. But really, uh, as I mentioned before, it really shouldn't be uh, as shocked as they are because there has been a longstanding tradition and practice within higher education for centuries of manipulating who is admitted into universities. And so back in the 1700s, these elite institutions were only for wealthy white men. It took decades and centuries to admit women. Many public institutions across the U.S. were not admitting women until the late 1900s. Harvard itself changed its policies when too many when they felt too many Jewish students were enrolling based on academic merit and so they instituted other metrics such as personality national origin geographic origin so uh, i read a quote recently by Malcolm Gladwell in relation to this scandal and he said when academic merit did not bring the right kind of student to universities quote unquote right kind uh, these universities changed the definition of merit. And that's exactly what Steve is mentioning in this case currently at at Harvard with the Asian American students. And so that 
goes into a deeper level as well, as I mentioned earlier, is we've been talking about the criminal aspect of this case, but we haven't mentioned the um, civil lawsuit that was brought by several students denied um, admission to some of these universities. And so there's been a longstanding deference to institutions regarding who they admit, and that's been a lot of the rationale that courts have used to uphold affirmative action in admissions. And so uh, I don't think the system will be overturned based on this scandal, unfortunately, the isolated incidents of several people. Um, but certainly there has been a longstanding tradition that universities have been allowed to select who they would um, bring to their university, whether it be via money or arbitrary metrics that they institute. Steve, a lot of this sounds like the old conversations about private golf clubs and, you know, clubs in the downtown with the cigars and leather chairs. How is this any different? Can these universities stand there and stay with a straight face anymore that we're a private institution and how we admit students is up to us? They do, and they've been getting away with it, and the Supreme Court has allowed them a great deal of uh, leeway in, in doing that. You know, we, we talk about merit, and the question comes, well, what criteria should we use? Not are we current, but what, what criteria should we use to measure merit and admit students? And so the, you know, the, thing, the two things that come back to mind immediately are, well, grades and some standardized test, either the SAT or the ACT. Well, it's really hard to measure grades because the difference in a you know a wealthy school district and an inner city school district in the rigor of the courses offered and the grades given you know make it almost impossible so then schools have gone to the standardized test and again the question is well if you take if you take an SAT prep course that's going to you know give you a leg up and that's really only available to wealthier families well that's really not the case now. In, in New York City, there's a very smart guy named John Katzman who started the Princeton Review about 30 years ago and now runs a company named Noodle uh, that does uh, education technology. And he found out that the group that spends the most on test prep are Asian Americans. And the corollary to that is that Asian Americans are the poorest group demographically in New York City. So the poorest group per capita is spending the most per capita on test prep, what's important to them. So lots of people say, well, the SAT really isn't fair. We need other criteria. You know, and it, it's a complicated problem. How would you set the criteria for admission to a college? Do you say, yes, you know, we're, we're going to have an orchestra, but we're not going to recruit anybody to play in that orchestra? Or we're going to have a student newspaper, but we're not going to have anybody who's really interested in journalism? It's tricky. Yeah, I agree with Steve. It absolutely is tricky. And, you know, there's so many layers to this, the institutional academic freedom, the ability of universities to field an athletic team and bring in people who have special musical and artistic talents. But going back to your earlier question, Craig, I myself also asked for a moment, well, many of these are private institutions. Should they not be free to select who 
is admitted to their institution. So obviously, institutions, uh, state institutions, such as the University of Texas, which was involved in this, they have a legal and public mandate um, to be equitable and fair in the admissions process. But all of these institutions receive funding uh, via the federal government, via grants, but also via federal student financial aid. And so by law, they are um, duty-bound to maintain ethical admissions processes. What about the SAT? What's going to happen with that? I mean, we have a situation where there was one guy who was hired to fake his test results of students, uh, and obviously he's turned state's evidence at this point from what I've read. Mm -hmm. What's going to happen with the SAT? How do we protect against this kind of thing in the future? Are we going to see Congress getting involved with this? That's a great question. Um, You know, it usually takes something like this that um, has been fueled in the media to bring attention. But quite honestly, this is not the first time that there have been uh, cheating scandals uh, on college admissions tests. So everything we've been discussing today, the NCAA has fault. Uh, The individuals have fault. The institutions have fault. The system has fault. And absolutely, uh, one of the players in this will be the college admissions testing services who will just have to beef up their security processes. Back in college, I served as a proctor, and a student just came in and showed an ID and signed in. Uh, There are many better ways that we can ensure that a student really is who they say that they are. Um, You know, it might take these testing services to hire more proctors, have more than two people in a room at one time. So I don't think that the system should go away. I don't think it's defunct. Um, There are hundreds, if not thousands, of testing centers across the U.S., but absolutely uh, these testing companies will be called on to improve their testing security. I think Joy is absolutely right. I heard something from a college counselor, a private college counselor, who does a lot of work overseas. And for the most part, the college board is pretty rigorous in trying to weed out people who cheat. This particular scandal where Rick Singer you know, told families, get your kid a special dispensation to take the test with one extra time and two alone. And then he, they went to certain places in California and Texas to take the test with a proctor who had already been paid off to allow the, you know, the Harvard test taker to come in and do it. It was pretty ingenious. It was despicable, but it was ingenious. So the college counselor I talked to yesterday said that he has heard that the college board has pulled the uh, testing in two foreign countries in the Middle East because they can't guarantee that the actual students will be taking the test. So they're aware of you know, potential problems. And I think this is just a new scam that they had not expected, they had not seen before, and they will obviously now try to make, you know, protection against it. The more important question, I think, is what do you do about the SAT? And I don't think for a second that colleges are going to do away with SAT or ACT exams. One, it is a triage system. You know, they never publish minimum scores that you have to get to be considered for admission, but almost every school has one. We used to say that if you don't have 1,400 on the SAT, that's 700 on the math and 700 on the English, you are probably, if you're a a middle-class white kid, you're not getting into an Ivy League school. They'll never tell you that, 
but it was it, it was a triage system because they had so many people applying, and this was just one quick way to say, okay, we, we can say that a kid who has fourteen hundred is better than a kid who has sixteen fifty, and they are not going to change that. Right. Well, thank you. It looks like we've just about reached the end of our program. We'd like to invite our guests to share their final thoughts and their contact information for our listeners to reach out to them. So, Joy, let's turn it over to you first. Sure. Once again, thank you for inviting me to participate in today's conversation. And every time I speak with someone about this, I learn even more. So, Steve, I definitely appreciate listening to your perspective. Um, As I said before, this Scandal has so many layers. Naturally, on its surface, it's a criminal issue, um, but it really gives light to the imbalance of power in the admissions process. Uh, Definitely, testing systems will have to beef up their security, but I think universities need to provide greater checks and balances than what is given to the admissions office. The fact that uh, a few coaches were able to be paid off to utilize their special admits reveals a hole in the system. And also it begets a larger question of, is the notion of institutional academic freedom at risk? And um, are we disserving the students when we do special admits, Uh, whether they be via bribery or via athletics or via fundraising. And all of those are very valid um, issues of debate that could go on for hours. And so, like I said, I really appreciated the ability uh, to uh, speak with you guys today. And um, I would love to continue that conversation with any of your listeners. My email address is jlblanchard, that's B-L-A-N-C-H-A-R-D, at lsu.edu. And so if they just Google Joy Blanchard on the LSU website, they should be able to find my contact information. Great. Thank you very much. Steve? Well, Craig, first, thanks for inviting me. And and Joy, thank you. I I thought your insights were terrific and gave me things to think about. You know, almost a century ago, Justice Brandeis said uh, sunlight is the best disinfectant. And I think this scandal has provided for lots of sunlight, sometimes in areas that people really didn't want and schools didn't want sunlight to be showing off what's going on. So I think the the lots of questions, and we didn't even touch on some of the biggest questions, such as the cost of college and the availability of financial aid and the burden of student debt. And I think what this scandal is going to do, besides punish guilty people who've done unethical, bad, illegal things, I think it's going to raise lots of important questions. And this questioning and these, this debate and some tough decisions are going to be coming out in the future. I, too, you know, I, I want to I think about this more. I, I appreciate your insights. And any uh, listeners who do hear this and want to continue it, our website has a whole bunch of articles I've written um, about this topic. It's pollockcohen.com, P-O-L-L-O-C-K, com. We're a law firm in New York. And my contact information is on the website, and we look forward to hearing from you. And so, Greg, thanks so much for inviting me. You're quite welcome, and thank you. We'd like to thank both of our guests, Joy Blanchard from Louisiana State University and Steve Cohen from Pollock Cohen for being our guest today. Well, that brings us to the end of our show. If you like what you heard today, please rate us in Apple Podcasts. You can also visit us at LegalTalkNetwork.com where you can leave a comment on today's show and sign up for our newsletter. I'm Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thank mm-hmm. you.
Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.